Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest today is a returning guest, uh, my friend Janice Spangler. Welcome to the podcast, Jana. Oh, thank you, Richard. I'm so happy to be back. Uh, Jana was on episode 144, and this will be in the 700s, so the lot has... A lot of stories have been shared since episode 144. That was about four years ago in 2019. Jana talked about the stages of faith, and it was one of the highest listened episodes in that kind of time period, 21 um, to 22,000 listens, which was a huge spike compared to the podcast during that those few years. Uh, she talks about the stages of faith, and I recognize that there's a lot of people out there going through a faith transition, um, some call it falling upwards. I called mine a mini faith crisis. And Jana was the first person as I walked this road as a Latter-day Saint that gave me context and tools as she introduced me to Fowler's stages of faith. And um, she has been in this space. Let me introduce um, her with her bio. Jana Spangler is a certified integral professional coach at Symmetry, Symmetry Solutions and member of the International Coaching Federation. She is an alumnus of the Living School. Um, that's really cool, by the way, where she studied complete contemplative spiritual traditions and the work of transformation in the direction of Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr is somebody I deeply admire. You may you'll probably talk about who Richard Rohr is. Jana's professional and personal experience combined with her training makes her an expert in the field of faith transitions. She is a sought-after podcast guest, speaker, presenter, and retreat leader. And in the show notes, listeners, I'm going to um, link to a couple other podcasts she's done. Um, she did one with Faith Matters. It's Faith Journey 101. That was on July of 2023. And I'll link to that in the show notes. If you're hearing about Jana for the first time and and you want to hear more than just this podcast, go to Faith Matters. We'll link to that in the show notes. There may be some overlap, but there may be some things that are differences different. She also was on episode 135 um, um, with the podcast At Last She Said It, and that's with Cynthia and Susan. And she talks, the title of that podcast, What About Religious Trauma? Um and that's a we probably won't get into that in this podcast. Um, it's a chapter of my latest book, chapter book three, is just mm -hmm. the idea that um, our restored church can re result in pain for f some faithful members, and how do we navigate that when our flight or fight response may be to live this lead the source of the pain, even if we actually mm -hmm. have a fundamental testimony of the church. So. Um, I just, I reached out to Janice. Um, Jana, I saw her at either Faith Matters or Gather in September and said, Jana, I'd really love to have you be on the podcast. And she's fit me in. Um, she's a full-time life coach. Um, and um, she has a giant wait list, but we will link to Symmetry Solutions in the show notes. If you want to access the services there, either get on her wait list or access the serve services of other professional coaches there. Um, Janet isn't on here pitching new business. Um, this is just a labor of love for our community. Um, and I just personally am so grateful for the tools and principles Jana shared with me um, back 2016, 2017, 2018, and the mentor she's been to me and um, her work that's really needed in our community we said a prayer that before we start, we just hope this is helpful to you. If you're in a faith transition, if your spouse is, a family member is, if you're a local leader and they are, or you're not, but you may recognize this may be part of your future and you want principles now to help you navigate that um, future path that may be part of your future. So that's a four and a half minute introduction and I'm going to turn my mic off and get Jana talking. Welcome to the podcast, Jana. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Thank you for all of that setup. Um, and I'll just mention that Symmetry is not just coaches. We also, it's actually primarily therapists. So we have all kinds of professionals that can help people through whatever difficulties we're facing. And all of them are very well versed in um, just this whole landscape of what it is to come from an LDS background and be um, 
uh, part of this community with its joys and its its blessings and its uh, its difficulties. Um, and you know, especially for people for whom the journey has become complicated, it is often so helpful to have people that you know can hold space for you. Um, you know that don't have an agenda for your life that aren't going to be threatened by whatever comes out of your mouth <laughs> that, that you can be fully open with. And what I find in my work is that that is one of, um, one of the biggest, uh, I don't know, sources for not only just solace and strength, but also reflection and moving forward. Um, sometimes when we're just able to say things out loud, um, it's really helpful. And, and for better or worse, we, and probably both, we haven't found space yet within the walls of the church for us to really have a robust discussion about these things. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to hopefully have some resources for people uh, outside of that space. I would love to have it bring it inside that space and several wards and stakes have had me come do that. Um, but it's, it's a delicate thing and it makes a lot of us really uncomfortable. And, and, um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fraught space, Richard, <laughs> um, but that a necessary one. And I get a lot of, a lot of joy out of my, out of my work in just being there for people. I'm not trying to tell people who to be, I'm not trying to tell them how to do it. I'm just trying to help them recognize that they've got it within them to move forward and uh, to help have some framings as to how to do that. So that's perfect. It's that, really that's needed. My that's my, my spiel. <laughs> and I think you're going to talk about at some point, Brian McLaren, mm -hmm. um, yeah. who is somebody yeah, so I wasn't aware of when you were talking about Fowler and faith matters. Yeah. He's presented a couple of times and he has a fourth stage model that, so I just, in the framing of this podcast, I think Jen is also going to mm -hmm. talk about his work that is really resonating yeah. in our Latter-day Saint community. Absolutely. Like the first time we talked, Richard, we, we used the Fowler stages of faith. And that's the one that we primarily used on the Faith Matters podcast as well. And so I would direct people to those if you want a kind of a breakdown of that model. Uh, but the Fowler's not the only model out there. He's just very researched in the particular uh field and area of spiritual development. So that's why he, his work gets brought up a lot, but there are a lot of developmental researchers and there are a lot of maps that help people understand uh, that there are different ways to go about faith. There are different ways. It's, it's like two people standing um, at two different sides of a large room and seeing very different things. They're looking at the same thing, but seeing it differently. And, and, what I find with developmental models is that they are really helpful and they can also be weaponized. And so I always use, I, I, I recommend that people use caution in the way that they're using it, right? Because uh, by definition, developmental models are a stepwise thing. Like we start in a more simple place and things get more complex as we move along a developmental model, whether it's how we are, how we grow as physically as human beings or emotionally or anything else. There's, there seems to be a stepwise way through this life. And sometimes we can uh, have the mistaken idea that more developed is better. We kind of have that, uh, that idea in our culture, our religious culture, our, our national culture. We, we love to have a goal and to reach it. And um, it's, it's a fraught thing with development because just as a child, um, you know, can, can experience all the joy and connection of any human being at any age, um, they, they are also kind of innocent from really how hard life can be most of the time, right? And so as we develop, there's a, a big upside we get more freedom. We have more choices. We enter adulthood. We also are aware of a lot more suffering. And sometimes if we, um, it, it, we can also have a higher capacity for more dysfunction, if that makes sense. So development does not always equal happy. It doesn't always equal good. I don't think it's a ladder that everyone should climb. And we really don't have a choice anyway. This is not 
a thing where we say, okay, we want you're at this, it's the, you're at this stage and we need to get you to the next stage. Um, if you are called to the next stage, it'll just happen in the course of your life. Um, so I, I just want to be careful as we go into it that I'm just, I, the, the ways that I find it to be really helpful in our community to talk about these things is not like, who's more developed? Where are you? Where are you at? Where am I at? It's more understanding that different perspectives exist and that people are coming to them honestly. Because one of the things that I notice in our community is that one of the ways, probably the primary way that we really feel close to one another in families, in our, in our wards, in our neighborhoods is through sameness. And so if I feel the same way you do about something, then we are suddenly best friends. Like we feel seen, we feel heard. And what's hard in this day and age is that because of the internet, because just new generations are growing up with, you know, as has always been, the next generation has different ways of going about things. Um, sometimes it can be really hard to communicate across those lines. And it's hard to feel safe across those lines. Because if you're not the same as me, Richard, and especially when you once were, like, I don't know how to relate to you anymore, right? So what I find with these staging models is just giving language so that we can understand that someone else is coming from a different place. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong, they're bad, they're, uh, mis they're misguided, they're, um, they're losing it, you know. Um, a lot of fear crops up when we see people we know and love uh, seeing things differently, talking about things differently, and then especially if they start doing things differently. That's a whole different level of, of difficulty for us to deal with. Um, so for development, partially it's for people who find themselves moving on to different ways of thinking about their faith. It gives them language. I find it that it can give them language to explain them and their experience to themselves because it's really confusing when you're going through it, what's happening to you when you've never been given a framework that what you're going through is a normal part of being a human and that millions and millions and maybe billions of people have gone through it before you. Um, so those are the ways that I think development is, can be used in healthy ways. When that difference starts to come up, the, the, the risk is that, um, Someone who sees, who's, you know, sees their family member who has always been this, you know, solid person in the church start making other talking in ways that we we think, oh gosh, what what influences have have fallen on this person? Fear comes up in us, and we don't have a way to talk about this within the community in a way that says that you know what maybe God has this person and we can trust what is moving in them. This does not have to be an end to faith. This doesn't have to be an end to righteousness, right? Um, so on the side of the believers, we have to really watch what's happening emotionally within us and how our fear might be getting in the way of relationship. And on the other side, when we're experiencing it, it can be really tempting to try to make everyone wrong who is doing it the way you used to do it. You know, they just don't know enough. And if they knew what I knew, they would join me. Um, but what I find, and I think the title of your podcast is just perfection, you know, listening, learning, loving. These are the ways to uh, find new ground with other people. I promise, even though it feels like this is such a big part of our identity that we're, we're losing someone completely. I promise that you still have a lot of core values in common with this other person and it can give you ground to move forward. So with that set up, um, I'll just touch on Brian McLaren. So he is actually now, I wasn't aware of him, I think in 2019, I think I became aware of him maybe just after I was on the podcast 
because he is now affiliated with the Living School. So I, I uh, moved on, I graduated from that program in August of 2019, and he gave the commencement speech, I guess. They don't really call it a graduation, they call it a sending ceremony, mm. sending us into the world. Um, but, but that's where I first became aware of Brian. And I, he was probably mentioned a few times throughout the course because he's kind of been a friend of, of Richard Rohr and that, that program. Um, Richard uh, Rohr, you mentioned him. He's got a lot of books that have been really helpful to people who uh, need different language for what they're experiencing in their faith. Um, he has done this. He's a Catholic priest, and he's done that within that that, um, uh, that religious tradition within that realm. Um, and for sure, when we start talking in different ways, it can feel kind of confronting to, you know, our regular ways of looking at things. And which is true. If you look up conservative, what conservative Christians have to say about Richard Rohr, it's not always a, a glowing report. Um, but I found a lot in that program that helped me understand what was happening to me in my own faith. Cause I have definitely had a complicated faith journey myself. Um, Brian wrote a book. He, uh, so he comes from a evangelical background and he has been a pastor and been to theology school and, uh, was raised in a, a group that was a more fundamentalist Christian group. Um, and with a lot of like cultural hallmark, hallmarks that are similar to our faith, uh, which I think makes him also very accessible for people in our, in our, um, in our faith. Uh, but Brian wrote a book, um, and I, I've read his last two books, very, very influential. One is called Faith After Doubt, and that's the one that introduces this model of growth. So um, he names four different stages. Fowler has six. Different staging models have different numbers. There's no magic number and there's no clear de delineation usually between one and the next. Sometimes we get this idea that we're fully in one stage or, and then we just fully jump to another stage, but really development doesn't happen that quickly. And there's usually a lot of time in between stages and we start seeing things in parts of our lives in one way. And we're still seeing things in parts of our lives in another way. Um, but again, it gives us language. So Brian took Fowler and all these other developmental models and came up with his own that he felt uh, gave some, some really accessible language to this phenomenon. And I, I really, really appreciate uh, the simplicity of his model um, because it really helps us understand, you know, rather than saying a conventional faith, talking about Simplicity versus complexity is it's a little more accessible for those of us who have not, uh, you know, done the scholarly work of understanding that language of Fowler. So uh, Brian's four stage model is as follows. And it kind of it, it if you've read Richard Rohr, if you know, falling upward, he does a two stage model of first and second half of life. And Brian's follows this a little bit. You can map most of these developmental models over one another. So the, the simplicity and complexity are the first two stages of Brian's model. And uh, that would kind of represent first half of life. And then perplexity and harmony are more second half of life. So you can kind of map those over each other. Um, simplicity, and, and I'll just go over these briefly. Simplicity is a stage where we have a simple story of meaning making in our faith. We have a story that we believe our faith is expressed through belief and our strength in the faith is measured by our, the amount of our belief. Um, we usually in simplicity, we, it's very structured. It's very ordered. We know what's, what's right, what's wrong. Um, we tend to believe we have it all. We have it all figured out. And then there's an in-group and there's an out-group. And, um, and it's a very, it's actually a place of a lot of safety. It's a really beautiful place to be raised um, because one thing that happens in complexity and in perplexity and when things start getting hard in faith 
you know, we start having all kinds of questions we never even knew to ask when we were in simplicity. Simplicity really holds us in a beautiful place that frees us up to do a lot of good in the world. So simplicity is a beautiful thing. Each of these, these stages have beautiful gifts and also ways that they can be drawbacks. Um, complexity is the stage where we start to notice that the world maybe isn't so black and white. Maybe we can't call everything just all good or all bad. Maybe there are things about the stories we've been given, the histories we've been given, whether it's within the LDS faith or broader Christianity or, um, you know, or history. Um, we start to see maybe there's a more complex story uh, to whatever this is in history, right? Um and so in complexity, we start asking some harder questions and we start being willing to see nuance and we start being willing to um, go deeper into whatever is coming up. And, and we, we do start to kind of question some things, but there's a limit to what we allow ourselves to question. This, this is also a phase, Brian mentions that it's a phase where we love growth. We love the 10 step program. That's going to get us to the next level. And we'll find a program. We'll be like, this is it. And we tell all of our friends, this is just the most amazing thing in life. Um, when that complexity starts to break down. So complexity, we're dealing with harder issues, but it is always still in service of the narrative of, of simplicity. So we're, we're still just really holding a container and uh, figuring out the best way to move through life. Once we start into perplexity, and if, you're, if you listen to Richard in that first and second half of life, the reason he calls his book Falling Upward is it is usually precipitated by something that stops working or presents a real challenge, even to the way we're making sense of life in complexity. Like there is a challenge that even complexity it stops being able to explain. The 10-step program stops working. And we are usually faced with something that we don't have the tools for. And we can stave that off for a while. And there are people who do. They'll take, they'll put a toe in perplexity and realize, I don't want to go there. This is risking too much. And I'm going to go rushing all the way back to simplicity and just forget it. And it is a valid thing to do. Like I said, this is, there is no uh, moral high ground to being in any particular place. But for some people, the perplexity really, whatever has come into our awareness, sometimes it's uh, a situation in our life that has become really difficult. Um, maybe it's a lot of adversity in some way. Maybe it's uh, something just stops making sense. Maybe we find out something that we thought was false and now we realize there's more evidence behind it than we thought. And we think you know, we have to change our mind about the way we're presented with things. But when that happens, perplexity is marked by questions. It is marked by doubt. It is marked by skepticism, it is marked by uh, by people uh, letting go of the full amount of trust that they have given to the leaders that they have always looked to to tell them how to do things. And that can be parents, that can be church leaders, that can be scripture, that can be all of our lessons that we've had. We look at it through new eyes and start to ask questions for ourselves how does this land for me? Do I really believe this? Does this really help me be a better person? Does this really help me become, be more Christ-like? And um, it can be a really, really confusing time. And people enter this phase for as many different reasons as there are people. Yeah. Um, in our community, it usually takes the form of some historical question uh, some issue with polygamy or with, uh, with racism, with how we treat LGBTQ people, how women, um, they, it, it are treated within the structures. Um, those are some biggies 
and sometimes the people just start listening to the messages and they just feel some sense of this feels too exclusive. Like, how does this fit for my neighbor? How does this fit for uh, people I know who have left the church? How does this fit for, for the rest of God's children that are the vast majority of the humans on this planet? There are so many ways to enter into deeper questions that we don't tend to address uh, within the four walls of the church, right? So perplexity, and I like the way Brian, Brian talks about this because we tend to look at it as a loss of faith. He looks at it as faith expressed through doubt. And that doubt is not the opposite of faith. It, they are things that synergize one another. And there are a lot of people who talk about that switch as actually more of a belief crisis than a faith crisis. Their beliefs are being challenged, but they are actually having to exercise a deeper faith than they ever have in their life because no one is showing them here's the next step. Wow. They have to really dig down deep and find something in themselves that still believes in goodness and that there's something in life for them and that there's a way through and that they can still be held through it. But it can be a dark time. And one of the a couple of things that get really challenging, I think, for people seeing their loved ones step into perplexity, your loved one can start sounding really negative. And we can characterize that as, oh, you've lost the light. You've lost, you can't talk about anything good. Um, you know, this is evidence that you're under the influence of the adversary. This is um, evidence that you're, you're really on the wrong path. Um, and I think there's a different way to frame that. I think we can frame that as... Um, really living the opposition of all things in a really deep way. People who tend to start to express their faith through doubt, open up something. They open up um, this touchstone where they know something is really hard. And if they allow it, it actually opens up bigger joy because freedom brings joy. When we are free to choose something, when we're free to say no to something, we are also free to say yes to it in a really more empowered way. So even though this stage can feel really hard and there is a risk of getting stuck in it, Brian in his book says that we can, it's like a Mobius strip. Sometimes our questions just lead to more questions, lead to more questions. <laughs> and, um, we can really get stuck in cynicism. There is that, um, that risk. And so at some point um, we do have to kind of use some of the tools that we learned early on in simplicity and complexity to help pull us out of this. Um, one of the thing, one of the phrases that I love that I think is important when we talk about growth and staging is to transcend and include. When we move to a different stage, we don't leave the other stages behind. Brian describes them as tree rings. So if simplicity is the core middle part of a tree ring, as we age, we're just adding more rings onto it. Now we can see complexity, but we're also holding simplicity. And as we move into perplexity, that can feel like a big jump and it can feel like we're leaving all the rest behind. But actually it's when we, when we sink in and get into acceptance that we are in perplexity and that maybe that's not the end of the world and that that opposition is teaching us something. And we can start to see those gifts of simplicity and complexity that we really want to include as we go along our journey. And eventually that process can lead to this phase of harmony. And Brian himself says that he wrestled with naming it that in the book. Mm. He, he wrestled with thinking about, of it as solidarity. That was one thing he was kind of thinking of calling it. Um, and I do think there are problems with calling it harmony mm. that he himself notices because you, we get this idea that it's a utopia. We get this idea that it's just all unicorns and rainbows. Um, and it does have 
the capacity for that. Uh, because the way he names it, and I think this is the best descriptor of it, is it's faith expressed through love. So it just becomes a bigger thing. Now, that doesn't mean it's not expressed through belief, and it doesn't mean it's not expressed through doubt. It just means that it is also expressed through love and primarily through love. And we, we transcend and include all the rest within that. So you can see how that gets really complex, right? There's a lot to hold as we get to harmony. And even if we're having a little toe stepping in harmony, which all of us can, we can actually, I like that he talks about this. Sometimes we think, well, someone in simplicity can't understand what faith through love is unless they've gone through the whole, the whole rest of the, the stages. But he describes, for instance, in the book, a moment when he was a young man and at some sort of Christian camp and there with other people that he really enjoyed. And they're kind of noticing that this is kind of a last hurrah before they're going off into uh, places, you know, college and other things that are, you know, graduating from college or whatever it is. And they're going to be going different ways in life. And there's this kind of this beautiful moment at night when he's looking up at the dark sky and he's with all of his friends and he's out in nature and he just feels big. He just feels this connection to everything, this love, this absolute love for everybody there. We have access to that at every stage. This is not something that's just reserved for people who've gone through a faith crisis, right? This is something we can all relate to. Uh, so, um, we all have moments of that, and it's kind of a rule of development that as we actually get more center of gravity in that stage, we just have more access to it more of the time. But also, as I said earlier, in harmony, we have access to a lot more suffering as well. It, when we love, love is, uh, is a big experience. It's something that's hard to define. I, I leave it to the poets and the mystics to try to define love because they have better words. <laughs> um, because the experience of love is hard to nail down. Um, it's hard to explain to another person what that experience is. It's, it's ineffable, right? As I think deep spirituality is, as connection to God is, as great suffering is. Um, but it, it's, it's not always easy. It's not always easy to live in that place. As we love, we become more aware of other people's suffering. We open ourselves up to empathy. We open ourselves up to, uh, to the world. And in some ways, it helps us even more deeply understand what Jesus was trying to tell us when he said he is the way. Um, you know, he, he went through experiences to connect to the suffering of the world, right? That's so deeply part of our theology of the atonement is that he had to experience what it is to be fully human and the depths of all of the suffering of the world. And if we notice, he actually invited the disciples into the garden with him. He didn't say, guys, I got this. Nowhere has he said, just give it to me. I got it. Now, he was showing us what we actually have to do to really love in this world and to become like him. We have to descend below all rather than trying to call our way back into the Garden of Eden and not experience any of it and keep ourselves pure. So um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Loving is a lot. <laughs> um, and being at that stage is a lot. And one of the most heartbreaking things that I see as people go through perplexity and eventually into harmony is that even in harmony, even though it feels better to us to be, uh, when we're in simplicity or complexity, to be hanging out with someone who is exhibiting some harmony, it makes us feel better. It still looks different enough that they feel a little threatening. We kind of feel like they've lost their way a little bit. And so there's this chasm of understanding between people. Um, but if we can at least understand what, what people are experiencing by listening, by really, you know, uh, trying to understand and giving people benefit of the doubt and the dignity that they are being honest about what they are experiencing. 
I think that is like one of the number one skills we can develop as we see other people going through something different um, than we are. And that's just to believe them when they tell you what they're experiencing. Right. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. And it doesn't mean you have to jump on board and see the world the way they do. It just means that we have to believe that they're having a real experience and give them that dignity. So, um, something I've, I've just become aware of, uh, actually just in the last couple of days is that the, the church has released a new, uh, resource for people who are questioning. And, um, I haven't read every word of every link in it, but I've, I've hit the, the whole, the highlights of it. And I just want to say that this is a huge step forward. Um, and they're giving some really great advice. And I would, you know, if you want to link that in the show notes as well, I think it's a really great resource for members to try to understand people. And the, the advice really is to listen, um, to, uh, to love people, to make space for them, uh, not to preach to them, not to just bear testimony, but to really uh, help them feel valued. And all the while, while we, we strengthen our own um, faith and testimony, right? So I think sometimes we worry that if we listen to other people, it's going to take us down, right? Um, but I think if we stay centered in our own faith and really deep in faith, that's really what I'm an advocate of and of people who come through in any stage is that there is always a way to deepen. There is always a way to understand more of what it is to be human. There's always a way to understand more deeply how we relate to God, how we relate to bigger meaning in our lives. Jenna, I just love listening to you, and um, you were terrific in 2018, but there's something about being in this space for another five years and all the work you've done, um, you know, the living school and graduating there and all the many experiences you've had. Your voice is so needed and unique, and you may be just the very best or one of the very best at this space in our community, and I love the way you bring resources from the and principles that apply from other faith communities and help our community. Um, I have, I have not listeners read faith after doubt by Brian McLaren. Uh, it may be on my shelf and, um, I'm going to read that book. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but I love just you going through that and, uh, listeners, when people talk about the need for vocabulary and the need for, models. I just recognize that I'm going back to my younger self when I left simplicity. <laughs> um, you know, kind of went, feels like I went straight to perplexity. Um, I just mm -hmm. didn't have any, everything that had been told about people like me was not helpful to me as I was walking this road. And I didn't have, I thought there was, you know, I knew that, you know, I was a YSA bishop at the time. So the narrative that that applied to people going through a faith transition or faith crisis. I knew it didn't apply. The year that this was happening, I had the chance to invite three people to be baptized and had the chance to baptize people the first time since my mission that I actually walked in the waters of baptism. So that both of these things were occurring, um, perplexity and, you know, serving. And so maybe that was lucky for me that I recognized, at least within myself, I wasn't doing something wrong, and I wasn't being lazy or sinning or not reading my scriptures enough. Or, um, And you said something interesting. You said, you know, people put their toe under perplexity, and for some people, you know, it's kind of intentional that they want to learn about our history, and so they are do put their toe. But for some people, I'm thinking of a parent of an LGBTQ kid, because that's a space I'm in a lot they're sort of forced into perplexity because they have res parent responsibility for a queer kid. And it's not, that's right. and they, and that's maybe my story as a YSA Bishop having a couple gay men is I felt my toe, my toe was because of my priesthood responsibility just put me into perplexity because I wanted to do the right thing for a queer yes. Latter-day Saint. And so there's a, and then when you said that, you said something really powerful. It says for every reason going into perplexity, there's another personal story 
So everybody's yeah. got a unique story. And the other thing I love is absolutely you taught me in the podcast you did four years ago was um, this is not like stages of, you know, becoming a better athlete where you have these, you know, so if I'm a long distance runner, I can kind of mark off my improvements and I can look back and look at that, you know, earlier stage and say, well, that, and I love the way it's not like this. And so many models in the world are, you get a further degree or this is not like that. And it's all equal. Um, and there's grace between these stages and, if you're in perplexity or harmony, the natural tendency may be to pull people out of simplicity and help them understand mm-hmm. your space. But maybe the people in harmony recognize, I don't want to, you know, I'm in harmony, allowing people in simplicity to be in simplicity. And it's not right. they're intellectually immature, some of the labeling we might give. They, yes. And so I think that's one of the the gifts of of you explaining Brian's podcast and the work you're doing is, mm-hmm. is this isn't. So now I have a couple of questions for you that come to mind as I just yeah. Um, yeah. Um, talk about, talk to parents that might be in perplexity or in harmony that are in the church and they've got mm-hmm. kid kids at home that are, they're in simplicity just because they're, gen, you know, they're young and they might even be mm-hmm. coming into leaving on their mission and they're still in simplicity mm-hmm. and they don't quite know I want to give them the tools if they're going to get into complexity, perplexity, and harmony, or should I just let that come, or should I introduce some of this model into my junior high kids or my high school kids? So mm-hmm. talk talk to parents that are aware of the future road their kids may walk that are in simplicity and want to give them tools. This is sort of maybe what mm-hmm. I wish my parents, I mean, I'm not being critical of any of my life, but nobody gave me yeah. a model why I was in simplicity mm-hmm. to realize this could be my future. Yeah, 100%. So this was a common thing where um, most parents do not teach their children. They teach from their stage of development. Mm. They want their children to not have the pitfalls that they had in their own learning and growth, Right. And we don't teach as much to their stage. Now, a couple things. Uh, each generation, I think, becomes, they, they reach later stages quicker than we did. Yeah. Every, every generation gets quicker because they get more of a free ride up to a certain level of development. Now, we all have to go through the simplicity and complexity. Uh, but actually, in... In Fowler studies, I remember when I first read this, you know, moving into stage four, Fowler is more like moving into perplexity, right? Um, And Fowler's research said that people were hitting that as they were going off to school and college, but that's when they were moving into stage four. And boy, I was confused because, you know, I wasn't even thinking about stage four until I was into my 40s. And as I've worked with people over you know, the last seven years, like, you know, there are, um, I lost my train of thought for a second. Where was I going with this? <laughs> but, so, um, remind me of the, the question. Just, um, you're doing a good job. Just parents yeah. um, talk. With the parent thing. Yes. So, I was really confused by that. The people that I've worked with are typically hitting this perplexity stage. Um, they're, they're hitting it more in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And that is because a group that is organized around some simplicity and some complexity can really hold us uh, through a wobbly stage of moving into adulthood. We have missions. We have church schools, we have programs that hold people through. Um, and, you know, I think there's always room for improvement in the way that we do that, but we have more than maybe most. A lot of people just go off to college and, and, and learn all kinds of different things. And like I said, this isn't a bad thing. This is just what happens. So if we are seeing our kids hitting a, a complexity or perplexity stage as they go through their teen years and, and, you know, even as they're getting ready for missions, this is actually normal. 
And just like it's, we need to like really look at our own um, reactions, our own emotional uh, reactions to somebody leaving where there's some fear. There is nothing like a parent seeing their kids start to ask really hard questions to like really scare us. <laughs> but what I want to say, Richard, is we, we don't have to force anybody and we can't actually force anybody into uh, a different stage. But what we can do is just um, let them know that wherever we are in life, it isn't the end. That we're we are always going to be moving through uh, challenges, and those challenges, if we if we allow it, if we uh, if we look for the lessons in it, if we don't resist it, will bring growth. And when we have growth, we end up seeing the world in different ways. And just letting people see the world the way they do, wherever they are. I don't have to make you, Richard, see things differently than you do just because I may see it from a different place. It's that desire for sameness that makes us think we need to do that. So there's a real practice for parents in acceptance of their children that, um, and a trust in the children. And this is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the more we trust our children in wherever they are, whether it's in simplicity for longer than we think they should be, if it's if they're moving too quickly through to different stages than we think they should be, it's trusting that their life is taking them somewhere wise. And what they really need is not to be fixed, not to be adjusted, not to be spoken to, not to be given a, a whole new map of where they should be. They need to be witnessed. Uh, we, we try to fix each other too much in our, in our culture. People need to be witnessed. I love the, the quote by Palmer, Parker Palmer. He's a writer and an educator. He comes from the Quaker tradition. Um, and he, he said these words. He said, here's the deal. The, the human soul does not want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed and companioned exactly as it is. And when we give that kind of deep bow to the soul of a suffering person, our trust in them ignites their, their soul's healing resources, the only resources that can help a sufferer make it through. Wow. We all, yeah, we are all on this journey in a solitary way. Only we can heal ourselves. Only we can grow within ourselves. Only we can deal with difficulty within ourselves, but we can't do it alone. But we don't need people around us trying to fix us. Because inadvertently, we are sending the message that, yeah, something's wrong with you. You need to be fixed. What we need to be doing is sending the message that, show me who you are. Tell me who you are. What is it like to be you? When we allow that space for a person, they actually figure themselves out and make really good decisions for themselves. Um, great advice. Um, what would you say to um, local leaders um, would you ever consider, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of local leaders that are listening, a young woman's president, a young men's president, or at least study president bishop saying, I'm aware that, you know, people in my congregation may be leaving the church over the next couple of years. And I honor their agency, but also want to give them tools to navigate that road. And I may be in simplicity and I don't really know how to help them, but I'm listening to this model and you're um, and I want to create an environment in our ward um, where we're introducing these kind of models to help, you know, not create sameness, but to create unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ where we're all in different stages, which may be harmony. Would you, any advice for local leaders? Should a local leader introduce this as part of a fifth Sunday? Um, and this is kind of back to parents when, and this is assuming the audience is kind of in simplicity and you, you don't want to change, you don't want to make that experience different than because it's so, it's such a good place to be. You don't want to introduce perplexity to somebody in simplicity, um, but you may want mm -hmm. to give them the tools. I don't know. So help a local leader navigate 
any and maybe that's such a case by case thing it's hard to give a general mm-hmm. um suggestion yeah for sure i mean it, it is such a quandary it really is um because i i think that there are some of these models that pretty universally would be helpful at the same time i recognize that uh there's nothing then nothing official from the church that has given that green light or has vetted any of these models or has given their blessing to anything. So it, it, it can be really, um, what I find is it can be really difficult for a bishop to feel the permission to let people know that this stuff is out there. What I see most leaders doing is uh, just maybe having in their back pocket, knowing that some of these resources are out here and, uh, you know, having a list of, of things that uh, might be supportive for people that they become aware of that are going through this, right? So knowing that there's this book, Faith After Doubt, knowing that there's um, the Richard Rohr has material that's been really helpful to people, um, but it, it's, it's a hard place to be, right? Because if that goes badly, and by badly, hmm. we mean it doesn't keep the person in the church, um, then we we have we we wonder what we've done because we stepped outside the lines of what's approved material, right? So it's a catch twenty two a little bit because I actually think the things that could be helpful. Um, we don't have enough experience to hold what actually happens next. Mm. If, if you, if you're a leader and you're in simplicity, um, it is really hard to hold a space for a person who is in perplexity and to really understand what is happening mm-hmm. and to not want to kind of pull them back into something that feels more stable. Um, so honestly, my, my best advice for those people is to really uh, embody ministry and pastoral care for people. Um, put your administrative side hat to the side for a minute. You know, all of our leaders have administrative duties. We ask a lot of our leaders because not only are they the administrators of the ward, but they're we also at least look to them to be our ministers and they don't always have formal training in that. But this guide that has just come out from the church is a good guide. I mean, it is the principles of ministry that are in there, which are listen to, listen to the person, listen to them, give them space to be who they are, allow them to have all the emotions they're having, allow them to have all of the questions they're having. Just let them know they're not alone as they move through it. And it's a, it's a counterintuitive move because sometimes we feel like if we're allowing it, we're going to lose them. Yeah. But in reality, if we don't allow them, we're pushing them out. So the allowing, even if they end up outside the church, which I don't think should be the measure of success is keeping them in the measure of success should be, do they feel comfortable walking in this building even after they've left do they still feel comfortable you know seeing all of our neighbors and members on the street as they're out walking and do they feel embraced and valued um that's uh, you have this ability also to give very pragmatic advice <laughs> um i liked your advice that maybe this isn't the kind of model you could you know introduce in your whole ward or young men's, young women's release society, there may be some downside risks, but I love where you went on a one-on-one ministry um, mm-hmm. to be, you know, informed with books like Faith After Doubt. I thought of my own brother's book, uh, Bridges, yes. Ministering to Those Who Question, that is a desert it's book, a and book. you would obviously, yeah. And so, and then it's, to me, it's what can you do as a local leader to create a feeling that you're safe so that somebody will open up? And that without, you know, so you're, well, I don't know what what the right term is, but you're, I had a new bishop just wanted to visit with me. And I said, one of the things I you might do is just 
in your testimony and our talk, just say, this is how I will respond if you feel you're in a quote-unquote faith crisis. Um, this is how I will respond, you know, and sort of in a public setting, and you could do this in Young Men's, Young Women's, Elders Quorum, Release Society, this is how I respond if you open up about the realities of your life, and that allows this one-on-one -on -one ministering that you're talking about to be possible. My, I'm thinking of my faith crisis. I call it a mini faith crisis, listeners, but maybe that was just me thinking that's the best thing I could label it and still feel like people would like not feel like maybe it was bigger than that. Maybe that's, you know, anyway, but I opened up to whatever it was to my resident stake president, Dave Sturt. He's now a mission president. And he did what he, he had some really intuitive pastoral care and he allowed me to have a fallen domino or two. That's the model he introduced to me as I, you know, and the idea with dominoes falling is one falls, they all fall. And he allowed me, as I talked to him about the LGBTQ space, he didn't pretend to have all the answers. And he allowed me to live with the dissonance I was feeling. And we called that a fallen domino. And then we both were kind of reminded of the dominoes I had that have really deep roots that keep me, you know, in the church as a believing, pretty traditional believing member. But somewhere in this perplexity harmony stage. So I just knew I could open up to him, listeners, and that he would, he didn't ever do anything like public, like I'm suggesting, but I just knew enough about his personality and how thoughtful he was in his context. And he didn't really have the us versus them, these are the last days, sort of this narrative that can create a feeling that maybe you're not safe to open up to. And I believe you know, I believe all that, but there's a tone. And one of the things you might do if you want to do something in this space as an elders corn president or release study president, and we'll put this in the show notes that Jana brought up is the new church resource on listening and validating people that feel different than you and recognize somebody may know more about a topic like church history, polygamy, mm -hmm. um, you know, blacks and, and then, than I would. And our job maybe is to recognize they may know more about a subject than I do, even if I'm the leader here or, or older <laughs> and just sit with that and, and go a little slow. So that may be a resource since it is produced by the church that could provide content for a fifth Sunday and elders corn release society to your point. Um, Absolutely. We're coming to, I want to give you, another yes, and let's make this our closing segment. So just go as okay. long as you want in your closing okay. segment. All right. But I think my, my other piece of advice I would give to people is to just recognize that, uh, I know at least the way I, I was raised in the church and the way I took it in as a young person and as, a, as an adult up, up until my 40s until things really shifted for me. Um, that there was one right way that God wanted me to be. And that included all of our practices, all of our rituals, all of our to-do lists that we have, which is, can be long for we Latter-day Saints. We like to immerse, which again, blessing and a curse. Um, and it was it's kind of this, this outside in one size fits all thing. And I, I just want to let people know that that works for a lot of people. And those people are typically the ones that get chosen to be the next leader of the Relief Society or the award or the state. But there are a lot of people out there for whom it doesn't work as well. Not as a whole. It's not an all or nothing. Uh, but one thing that I, I want to just offer to let people have a space to trust what people are going through is... Um, is that um, when people come and say that I'm struggling, if we, if we just give them, this is the program that has worked for me, it, it may not reach them. Um, one of the things I learned at the Loving School was just learning about what spiritual practices are actually supposed to do. When I was growing up, the spiritual practice was to keep me holding to the iron rod. Spiritual practice was to keep me focused. 
on all the right things and not to get distracted by the world, right? And then that somehow would just connect me to God. My experience was that that road was not built for me. Um, turns out I just was diagnosed this year with a little bit of ADD with some no. other things going on, the way that my brain works. That was never going to work for me. And one thing I would encourage people to do is to uh, really pay attention, ask people what genuinely connects them to goodness, what genuinely connects them to God, what genuinely connects them to this deep desire from within us to be a more Christ-like person. Ask them that and ask them what activities do it. Because for you, it might be reading your scriptures every day and praying in prescribed way that we teach people to pray. And, you know, it might be going to the temple. It might be some element of those for people. But for some people, it might just be opening the blinds in the morning and really being present and letting the light in and, and, and noticing, you know, having a connection with that, with the light of Christ. And that may bring something to them that 15 minutes in the scriptures at that time of their life may not be open to people creating their own ritual, their own spiritual experience, the way that they actually connect with, with, with God. Um, that's a simple thing that we can do, but don't try to fit them in a box because this is, this is one thing that I, I just want to be something I have noticed as I've worked with people. When people are deconstructing the things that they once believed and trying to decide what to keep and what to cast off, I will tell you, Richard, I have never once had someone come in my office and say, you know, I'm really rethinking this love one another thing. I don't, I don't know this, this, you know, caring for other people and caring for my sheep. You know, I just, I don't know that there's anything really good in that anymore. What they're deconstructing, Richard, is the, the parts that have harmed them or that didn't fit for them. They're, they're deconstructing the authoritarianism that creeps into all religion. That, that we have DNC 121 to remind us not, not to fall into, right? They're deconstructing the parts where they're not feeling fully accepted as a, as a full partner in the body of Christ. They're deconstructing the ways that they have not felt valued as a, as a child of God completely. It's the parts that leak in that are unhealthy. Now, it can feel, again, when we're a, a leader and we see someone asking some really pointed questions about, about our faith, see if you can get underneath what they're saying to what it means to them. If you could ask them any one question and I think it is, I mentioned the question once before, but I think it is one of the most beautiful questions a human can ask another person is what is it like to be you? What has it been like for you to be a person with that question? That is going to open up ways that we can support people. We've got to get out of this idea that it's all an intellectual exercise in getting people to believe the right thing. It's, it's a human exercise. Wow. of how to hold another person and help them feel the love of God to be the instruments of God on this earth. Wow. I'm so glad I saw you at that conference, whatever it was. There was two of them in, in September, and I've had this impression for a long time to get Jenna back on the podcast, and um, this has personally helped me um, just like your earlier podcast does, and I speak for um, the listeners. Um, you just you have this gift, Janice. You've paid the price, and I don't know if "paid the price" is the right term, but you've certainly put in the work with your own personal story, your own journey, and then all the things that you've read, the, the schools you've gone to, the all the stories you've heard, and this is uh, 
this brings us together as the same human family. I do love Zion to me was sameness growing up and unity and sameness because I grew up in a very homogeneous world. And now um, sameness is, or Zion is not sameness, it's unity in purpose. And I think of the city of Enoch. I wonder if they had some differences um, with water rights or land rights or tribal, but they seem completely unified. And we know that because there was no hands, there was no poor among them. And so I think, you know, you help us do that and you give us tools um, to bring us together um, within our faith and even between the group that are in our faith and those that have left our faith, which I think is a sign of discipleship. If we can reduce the tension um, between those two groups and learn to be respectful of those journeys, that's kind of a two-way street. And I wrote about that in my third book, um, about how to treat those that leave the church. It's not an invitation to leave the church, but it's an mm-hmm. invitation like Jenna's inviting us to reduce the tension, and often that takes new vocabulary. Um, but yes. Latter-day Saints, with our understanding of the doctrine of eternal salvation and agency, even though there's pain there, if, especially if it's a loved one, we should be able to leave that at the feet of the Savior. So I have a delivery guy coming, listeners. He's been texting me. <laughs> Otherwise, I would keep asking Janice about four more questions. So, <laughs> um, no worries. Jana, I'm, I'm, I think I'm I just called to come you back anytime, Richard. I love having conversation with you, <laughs> and uh, we can we can continue the conversation. But um, Jana, you're just terrific. So, on the show notes, we'll list the things. There's quite a few things. Earlier podcast, Brian McLaren, um, the church's new resource um, that that Jana talk about talked about, and. Mm-hmm. Um, just act on the impressions of your circle influence. And hopefully this podcast, if you're walking this road, um, just gives you more peace that you're okay and God loves you and you have a, and there's hope in your future. So this is Janice Spangler and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>